Well, let me say, first of all, uh, good evening, and uh, thank you for coming out, uh, as Tom said, on a Sunday night to think about what it means to think well uh, like a Christian. Uh, of course, you would think that I would be interested in the mind, being uh, president of a seminary uh, and also a professor of theology, but actually, uh, I have great concern for the life of the mind in the body of Christ because I recognize that in the year 2019, uh, living in America and living in the West, and, and by the West I mean the United States, Canada, but then think of Europe, um, Christian, a Christian worldview was once, once dominant. Uh, today, in many places, it is nothing more than a fleeting memory, and that's even being gracious. Uh, just this week, I was scouring news periodicals that I do, and I saw this absolutely majestic, beautiful, incredible cathedral uh, over in Europe that is now an indoor putt-putt course. At least it's not a mosque. Because overwhelmingly in Europe, uh, once uh, magnificent cathedrals are now becoming mosques. Because in Western Europe, uh, if it's not secularism uh, growing by leaps and bounds on the one hand, uh, it is Islam uh, growing very rapidly on, on the other. Uh, and it really is true that the center of Christianity is absolutely no longer the West. It's no longer Europe. It's no longer America and Canada, but it has moved uh, to the South, uh, into South America. It has moved to Africa and is exploding uh, in Southeast Asia. And yet in all of those places, uh, though there's great exuberance and great enthusiasm and passion uh, for the things of God, they likewise, I suspect, in fact, I know, are desperately in need of developing the life of the mind, developing an ability to think in a Christian, a holistic, comprehensive, Christian, uh, worldviewish kind of a way. Uh, often I say it this way, most evangelicals, and I would consider all of us in this room uh, are the, certainly the overwhelming majority of us were evangelicals. We are Bible-believing uh, Christians who have been converted and have received Christ as Lord and Savior. Most evangelicals are pretty good at loving God with their heart, but they're not nearly as good at loving God well with their mind. And yet to not love God well with our mind is to neglect in part the greatest commandment given in the Bible. So, uh, everyone, is there anyone who does not have a handout? Because I'm going to walk through this pretty uh, rigorously. I saw one hand in the back, so just make sure we'll get one to you. But I'm going to walk through this, and there are a few places where you're going to need to have a pen, and you're going to need to fill in, not too many, but fill in a few blanks. And uh, this, I hope, will provide for you a good foundation that I don't, uh, I hope you don't stop here. Uh, but I hope this will kind of whet your appetite to want to study more and delve even more deeply into some of the issues that are going to be raised this evening. So let's begin by asking the question, what is a worldview anyway, and do I have one? And what does it mean to be uh, cultivating a Christian worldview way of thinking? Well, there's a scripture at the top. I'm going to give you two more. So let me note, first of all, as I mentioned a moment ago, the greatest of all commandments, and he that is Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God, how? With all of your heart, okay, with all of your soul, fine, and with all of your mind. In other words, if I could be playful, and I am very playful, so if you don't know me, uh, I can sometimes say things, and my wife will get me in the car. She's not here, by the way, so I don't have to worry about that, but she will flat wear me out. You know, that was, that was, you should have said that. For example, as I'm about to say, you bring no glory to God by being a stupid saint. And she'll always tell me, you're not supposed to say stupid. And my grandchildren do the same thing. Well, they're not here and she's not here. So you bring no glory to God by being a stupid saint and not loving the Lord well with your mind. And Jesus was very clear about loving him properly engages the heart, 
the whole of you and your mind. Let me give you two other verses to write beside this, and you don't have to turn there. I'll read them for you. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, all that God has done for us in bringing us to faith in Christ, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, all right? So far, so good. But how do I present my body to God as a living sacrifice? In this way, do not be conformed. The idea is being squeezed or shaped by external pressure. Do not be conformed to this world. The idea is to the present age. Don't think like the present cultural context in which you find yourself. And, and by the way, don't think, well, it's so much harder today for us than it was in the first century. That is absolutely false. Uh, the first century world in which Christianity emerged was absolutely pagan to the core. Uh, they were a, a minority that uh, had virtually no rights uh, to speak of in any kind of a way. So we have far greater advantages and far more freedoms than did they. So we should never think, well, it's just harder today. No, 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 it is not harder today. That, that would be absolutely false and wrong for us. So if you have like this, some of, some of our evangelical family have a martyr complex, get over it. Get over it. We, we may be experiencing some discomfort. We are not martyrs. And we are not being persecuted even remotely like brothers and sisters all around the world and like the first century church experienced, all right? So he was saying, don't be conformed to the present trends of the culture, but, and here's the key phrase, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so once more, the Bible emphasizes the importance of the mind. And then one other one, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And here's what Paul wrote there. For though we walk in the flesh, he doesn't mean flesh there in the sense of the, the sinfulness of our fallen flesh. He was just talking about we have a body, okay? So, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Our body's not really, this physical world is not really where the real battle is being engaged. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what do you mean by strongholds, Paul? Verse 5, we destroy arguments and uh, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So once more, we see how very, very important it is that we think well, that we think biblically, that we think Christianly with our minds. Probably the greatest apologist of the last century was C.S. Lewis, though he's actually a great uh, professor and uh, uh, artist in a sense of literature. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you're embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. So, what I want to do in this first session, and we're going to go about 40 minutes, take a break, come back about 35, 40 minutes, uh, take some questions, and we'll be through for the evening, all right? So, in this first session, five questions I'm going to raise and seek to answer. Number one, what do we mean by a worldview? Number two, what does a worldview do or accomplish? How does it function? Three, what are the main worldview competitors seeking my allegiance? What's the worldview playing field, uh, if you like? What are the different teams out there that want you to join up and be a part of their team, all right? Number four, what does one's worldview have to do with one's source of authority 
for life. And I'm going to make the argument that all of us have a source of authority that impacts the way we make decisions. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, knowingly or unknowingly, you have something in your life that helps you determine what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, and why you live this way and not this way. We all have some embedded source of authority that directs and guides our thinking and also our behavior. And then fifthly, what difference does my worldview really make? And I'm going to make the argument it has a lot of difference. All right, so question number one, simple. What is a worldview? And this is my definition of it. A worldview is a comprehensive. Now, that means it's holistic. It will, uh, in, it will encompass and touch on every facet and every aspect of life. Your worldview is not just going to impact the way you think religiously or spiritually. It's going to impact the way you think about philosophy. It's going to impact the way you think about ethics. It's going to impact the way you think about morality and history and politics. Your worldview is going to impact the totality of your life. So it is a comprehensive view, a comprehensive view of life through which we think, understand, and judge and which also determines our approach to life, to meaning, and to our decision-making. James Sire says that a worldview helps us answer the ultimate questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Uh, Where am I going? Uh, Is there a God? What is the good life? And I like to add the question, Is there anything in life for which I would be willing to die? The reason I raised that question was a number of years ago, a survey was taken among American teenagers, and they were asked that question. Is there anything in life for which you would be willing to die? And the overwhelming majority answered no. No. There's nothing in my life that I deem so important and so valuable that I would be willing to die for it. And I believe this, brothers and sisters, if there's nothing in your life for which you're willing to die, you really don't understand what it means to live. And so a worldview is going to help us answer those kind of what we call the ultimate questions of life issues. All right? So let's move to the second question. What does a worldview do? And I think there are basically five functions of a worldview. Number one. A worldview seeks to provide a coherent and organized, a coherent and organized thought system. In other words, to say it another way, your worldview should bring rhyme and reason to the way you see the world. It it helps you make sense of the world in which we find ourselves. It helps you uh, make sense, for example, of some very hard and difficult questions that come along in life. Uh, perhaps the, the quintessential question that we as evangelical Bible-believing Christians have to answer is, how in the world can you believe in an all-powerful, all-good God in a world where there's so much pain and suffering? It's known as the question of theodicy. Uh, theos, God, dike means to justify. So how do you justify your understanding of the Christian God, who according to God's revelation, he is perfect goodness. He is also absolutely omnipotent. So he does not like bad things, and he can stop bad things, and yet bad things happen. Uh, There's a very uh, well-known, very uh, popular agnostic professor just over here at the University of North Carolina by the name of Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman uh, is a professor there of religion. Uh, He is an incredibly gifted communicator. Uh, He has been uh, very clear that his goal in life is to deconvert as many Christians as he possibly can. And he, by the way, is highly successful. Now, I don't think he's actually deconverting them. I think he's taking some uh, folks that come to UNC Chapel Hill that uh, got kind of an inoculation with a pseudo, syrupy, cultural, convenient, not real Christianity. And so it's very easy for him to blow that up when they are in his classroom. 
Well, he wrote a book several years ago, and he tried to make the argument. And let me back up. He grew up and, and, and went through the whole evangelical scene, got converted uh, as a teenager, went to youth camp every year, went to uh, Moody, went to Wheaton, and then he went to Princeton. And where he, when he went to Princeton, he began to walk away uh, from the faith and eventually now is a, in fact, he calls himself a happy agnostic. Uh, but I've met him, and if being Bart Ehrman and happy is happy, I don't want to be happy because he's one of the most miserable human beings I think I've ever met uh, in my entire life. So he, he doesn't, he's not a good poster boy for happy. Well, he said that he came to his doubts about the faith because of all the uh, uh, textual errors in the Bible. And I don't want to get too far off this, but uh, there are more than 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, greatest preserved document of the ancient world. And through comparing them, we are pretty sure that what we hold in our hands today is about 99.98% that of the original. But he tried to say, well, but no, there's, there's so many textual variants and so many disagreements, I, I just could no longer uh, uh, accept and trust the biblical text. And I knew in my heart, that's not true. He's, um, he's not being honest. And about maybe now six years ago, he was on NPR, did an interview. And they were interviewing him about his newest book, which deals with the issue of theodicy. How can you believe in an all-good, all-powerful God in a world but there's so much evil and sorrow and pain and suffering. And basically, he finally got honest. And in that interview, as the uh, interviewer kept pushing the envelope and pushing the question, he finally said, well, I'll just be honest with you. I just came to a point where I could, never, uh, I could no longer believe in the God of the Bible in a world where there's so much hell. It had nothing to do with the integrity of the biblical text. Something happened in his life, which is usually the case in most people's lives, that was so personally devastating. He could no longer make sense of the pain. And, I, and so at that point, I, I, don't, I have no anger toward uh, Professor Ehrman. I hurt for him. Because something happened that so wounded him internally that he just, I, I just can't live in a world where a all-powerful, all-good God allows things to happen like the Holocaust and mass murders and abortion and child abuse. And I'm going for a long time. And let's be honest, doesn't that bother you sometimes? If you say it doesn't, I don't think you're very reflective or thoughtful. But a worldview is going to help you make sense of those things. It's going to be coherent. It, it's going to actually be able to address the all-powerful God, the all-good God, and the presence of evil. It's going to be able to make sense of that because it is organized and it's coherent, all right? Number two, a worldview attempts to define the good life, thereby bringing hope and meaning to life. Coming out of the Greek philosophical tradition, we talk about uh, the, the, the beautiful, the good, the lovely, the virtuous, and we mean by that the good life. What are those things that are good and beautiful and virtuous? Well, your worldview helps you identify what you think those things are, and thereby it brings hope and meaning to your life as you pursue them and as you experience them, okay? Number three, and this kind of goes back to my question of theodicy. Worldviews bring sense to life by offering explanations. Explanations for the seemingly irrational events that occur in life. So again, mass murders, genocide, holocaust, pogroms. Several years ago, Charlotte and I had the honor of going, and it really was an honor to go to the Sudan, South Sudan, right on the Ugandan, uh, uh, Congolese, uh, Sudanese border. And we had the joy of being a part of a Bible conference for a week. Uh, we also did church planting. We did water well digging. Just a really, really cool experience in every way. 1,400 people descended on Kajikeji, 
um, Sudan, South Sudan. Many of them walked a week, walked a whole week from the Congo and Uganda, got there, slept outside every night. We had our week-long Bible conference, and then they took another week and walked back home. Uh, all of them poor, destitute, almost all of them farmers. And while we were there, I was speaking, and I noticed something very fascinating. There were virtually no men there my age, uh, that is, men in their 40s and 50s. There were a few men, not many, uh, in their 70s and 80s. And then there was a significant number of older teens and younger 20s. But there was like this massive, massive gap of uh, upper 20s and 30s and 40s and, and 50s. And I said uh, one day, I said, where, where, where are all the men? And their answer was, they're dead. Because more than 2 million people were killed in the Civil War fighting in the Sudan over the last 20 to th They wiped out a whole, not no, they wiped out several generations of men through that Civil War fighting. And you look at that and you say, well, what good could possibly come out of that? And that's a very fair, legitimate question for all of us to raise and to grapple and, and wrestle with. And let me say this, folks. Simplistic answers are usually poor answers. There are no simplistic answers to some of these hard questions. Now, there are, are answers, and I think good, solid answers, but they require thoughtful reflection and study to get at. And most folks just don't want to... It's intellectually taxing to tackle questions like that, and yet we can't avoid those kind of questions in the 21st century where secularism is making such inroads into the way people think, all right? Number four, worldviews also determine our values. They determine for you what you believe is good and what is bad. What is, so so do, do you think that... Um, the life of a newborn is more important than a woman's reproductive right to choose? Or do you think a woman's reproductive right to choose is more valuable than the life of a newborn? And so you're going to have a different worldview depending upon how you answer that question or to reverse it. Whatever your worldview is, is going to impact the way that you determine values. Okay. Then number five, growing out of values, a worldview guides our actions because it assigns values and priorities to those things that we engage and get active, where we are activistic. It helps us think through and arrive at where those things are, all right? So turn to the next page, and let me raise a third question. What then are the main worldview competitors operating or competing for my allegiance? And to help you out, some of you are very visual. I, li I like pictures myself. And so if you look on the very next page, I've given you kind of like a really cool, and I didn't come up with this. I stole it from somebody. And uh, I forget from whom I stole it, so I can't give them credit. But I just want to be clear, I'm not taking credit for this. So don't think I'm plagiarizing because I'm acknowledging I did not come up with this. All right. But it basically lays out for you what we're fixing to fill in on the seven basic theistic worldviews. Because when it comes to crafting and developing your worldview, how you answer the God question is going to go a long, long, long ways in shaping and molding your worldview. So basically there's seven options out there, brothers and sisters, and I'll just give them to you very quickly. Number one, atheism. Atheism. Atheism simply says, A means uh, the alpha primitive, no, theism, God. Atheism says there's no God. Uh, there's no God or no gods exist beyond in a transcendent way or even imminently in the universe. So there's no God in here. There's no God out there. There is no God anywhere. Now, there is, and I didn't list it, there is a soft form of atheism called agnosticism. Agnosticism. Uh, gnosis means knowledge in Greek. A means no. So an agnostic doesn't... Actually, I don't think atheism is intellectually tenable. I don't think you can really consistently be an atheist. But I could see how you could be an agnostic. Because an agnostic says, well, I have no knowledge of God. 
In other words, if God exists, if he, she, or they, or whatever it is, is out there, I've never encountered it. So for all practical purposes, I function like an atheist. But I'm a little bit more intellectually humble. So I won't say dogmatically there is no God. But what I will say as an agnostic is I have no knowledge that there is a God because I have not experienced or met or encountered that God. So that's the uh, atheistic worldview. And by the way, even though you hear a lot of clamoring about this, even today, e even in our increasingly secular context, uh, only about 7% of Americans would actually identify themselves as atheists. But what they will say is they're not religious. That's the big difference. You now know that one of the fastest growing demographic groups in America are called the nuns. And I don't mean like the habits and the little things they wear like females that go off to the monastery, uh, the nunneries, the convents. No, nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And nuns are not necessarily atheists. In fact, many of them would say they are devoutly uh, religious. Some would even say they're Christians. But they are very opposed to organized religion. And so they refer to themselves when asked, do you have a particular religious affiliation? Their answer in the surveys are none. None. But only about 7% of Americans would say that they are uh, atheistic. It will continue to grow because we have always, for most of our history, tracked behind Europe. And there are countries in Europe today where <clears throat> avowed atheism is now in excess of 50% of the adult population. Uh, most folks don't know this. In Israel today, the overwhelming majority of Jews in Israel are atheists. They're atheists. You say, why? Uh, the Holocaust. Six million Jews exterminated, wiped out, and they just, back to this theodicy question, God's good? Yes. God's all-powerful? Yes. He could have stopped the Holocaust? Yes. But he didn't. He must not be there. That God doesn't exist. And so we're going to get here in a minute where there's some other options. But it's very uh, interesting for most people to know that the overwhelming majority of Jews are atheists that reside in Israel. Now, what's happening, though, this is just a quick aside. It's interesting. Uh, the Orthodox, who do believe in a God, uh, have children like rabbits. I mean, it is not unusual for an Orthodox Jewish family to have 12, 15, 18 children. Like America, secularists, they don't like kids. Well, if they like them, they don't have them. So it would be highly, highly unusual for a secular Jew, an atheistic Jew, to have more than one or two children. And so in time, what is happening, in fact, the, the, every time I go to Israel, uh, there'll be newspaper articles that will read that will say the looming crisis in Israel is not between the Palestinians and the Jews. The looming uh, 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 crisis is between the Orthodox and the secularist. Because the Orthodox, by having more and more children who grow up to be adults who have more and more children, they're growing, and they're also growing in terms of their lobbying and uh, voting capacity within Israel. So it's a really fascinating thing to watch the dynamic of competing worldviews right there within the land where Jesus walked. So atheism. Number two, the flip side of it, polytheism, polytheism. Poly means many. So polytheism simply says there are many gods in the universe. Now, let me ask you a question, a little, little theological trivia here. What is a very popular cult that was birthed in America that is thoroughly polytheistic when it comes to their way of thinking about God? Mormonism. Mormonism. Um, I love Mormons. I want to see as many Mormons as possible uh, in heaven, but Mormonism is not Christian. And you say, well, I've got, friend, I've got friends that are Mormons, but Mormonism 
is an anti-Christian worldview theological system. And that's just being honest with it because whereas the Bible affirms one God who exists in this mysterious tri-unity kind of a way, Mormonism believes there are literally thousands, potentially millions of gods that can indeed occupy uh, the totality of the universe. By the way, uh, that's reserved only for men. Women cannot be gods in Mormonism. So if I were a woman right there, that'd be enough for me. But anyway, um, they are a thoroughgoing polytheistic system. For the most dominant course, polytheistic worldview is Hinduism, uh, where there are literally millions of gods that are worshipped by those that follow the Hindu way of thinking. All right? Number three, pantheism. Pantheism. The word pan means all. So pantheism says that in essence God is equal or equivalent to the universe. God is the universe and the universe is God. All that is is divine and the divine is uh, constituted by all that exists. So you're God, I'm God, uh, this, this podium is God, all that exists is divine. And so pantheism sees God as equal to the totality of reality, all right? Close to it but different is panentheism. You'll see there's a E-N word there. P-A-N-E-N. P-A-N-E-N theism. Panentheism. And panentheism says that God is in the universe. He's sort of like uh, uh, air that we breathe. He, he's everywhere, though he's not to be identified with everything. In fact, what is probably a very popular way of understanding panentheism is the whole Star Wars world, where you have what? The Force, which is in essence a divine principle. Now, it's not equal to everyone, but it is out there for everyone to tap into, potentially, and get in touch with. And so the whole Star Wars world uh, is a panentheistic kind of worldview system, all right? One of the most fascinating ones, and one that you would expect would begin to grow, finite, the word finite, finite theism. Finite theism. A finite God exists both beyond but also is involved in the universe. So there is a personal God in most finite theistic systems, not all but most. There is a personal God. But this personal God is not omnipotent. So, why do bad things happen? Because God, though he is all good, is not all powerful. And as a former professor uh, named Frank Tupper at Southern Seminary used to say, sometimes God loses. Sometimes God loses. The most popular expression of finite theism was articulated by a Jewish rabbi a number of years ago named Harold Kushner, Rabbi Harold Kushner. He wrote a book entitled, Not Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. All the time people mispronounce it. When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And what precipitated that book was that he had a child born to his wife who had a genetic disease that caused premature aging. And their little boy wound up dying at about the age, if I remember correctly, of 15 or 16 with the body of a 90-year-old. Couldn't see any longer, couldn't hear, hardening of the arteries, hair fell out, wrinkled body. It, just a horrible, horrible situation. And it just absolutely was more than he could bear. And so he stepped back and he said, well, well how do I make sense of this? Well, I guess I could say there is no God. And so bad stuff like this just happened. You know, I have a friend whose name is Mike Bryant, and uh, he is an atheist uh, on his bad day, but an agnostic on his better day. And uh, he wrote a book entitled Chapter and Verse, a, Christ a Skeptic Revisits Christianity. And at the end of one of his chapters where he's talked about the untimely death of an 18-year-old from cancer, he says, bottom line for me as an agnostic, and I won't use the word he uses. I'll use a more appropriate substitute. But he says, bottom line, life's a dog. He didn't use the word dog. He used the B word. Life's a dog, and then you die. 
And that's life. Life's a dog and then you die. And he said to me, because we're very good friends and still stay in touch to this day, he's not come to Christ, but I engage him on a regular basis. He said, that's what, he lives in Manhattan. Up there in New York, very secular. He said, that's what all of my friends think. One of these days, the lights go out and the party's over. But after all, life's kind of a blank anyway. So Harold Kushner said, maybe there's no God. But he said, no, I can't go with that. So then he said, well, maybe God's not actually good. He's an evil guy. He actually likes seeing children suffer. He enjoys Holocaust and pogroms and things like that. He said, no, I can't live with that either. And so he crafted out of his experience, that's very important, out of his experience, he crafted a theology that says we have a good God, but he is not an all-powerful God, and sometimes God loses, and sometimes God gets beat. And so that's what a finite theist would say. That view used to not hardly exist at all. Well, it was part and partial of, if you think, Greek mythology. All of their gods on some level were finite. And actually, most of their gods were kind of malevolent too. They, they, were, they were egotistical, and they easily lost their temper, and they just, you know, did stupid, irrational kind of things. And they were all sex addicts. Uh, the, the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods. So you had finite gods then. But in the Western world, the idea of an all-powerful God dominated for centuries. But now this view has begun to gain some momentum over the last 30 to 40 years as a possible solution to the theodicy problem for some people. Number uh, six, deism. Deism. God exists beyond the universe but he is not active in it supernaturally. God exists beyond the universe, but he is not active in it supernaturally. Now, I'm not here to start a fight tonight, okay? But the fact of the matter is most of the founding fathers of America were deists. Most of the founding fathers of America were deists. Now, did they have somewhat of a Judeo-Christian way of thinking? Yes, they absolutely did. But when people say, well, America was founded as a Christian nation, that, folks, is just not true. It, that will not stand up under honest historical investigation. It just won't. And so most of the founding fathers did believe in a God, a personal God. In fact, most of them held to uh, what we call the watchmaker analogy. God basically created a watch. He wound it up, threw it out there, and now it's running down. And that's the universe that we live in. Or to say it another way, God's up there, but he doesn't care. So does it help to pray? No, because God's not listening. He is a disinterested deity. He is a disinterested deity. And think about our money. Think about the dollar bill that has on one side the simple phrase, in blank we trust. In what we trust? In God we trust. You say, see, right there, that that's shows that we were Christian. I have a question. Which God do we trust in? It doesn't specify. It doesn't. So were we founded with kind of a Judeo-Christian context and way of thinking yes we, we did but we were not founded as a christian nation that simply would not be true now we have certainly imbibed at least at one time many christian ideals and christian morality and so on but to say that we were founded as a christian nation no we were really founded for the most part by a large number of intellectual deists and there's no way to overstate the influence of the quintessential deist from France, and that being Thomas Jefferson, who, though he wasn't a Frenchman, was massively influenced by the whole French Revolution and way of thinking there, all right? Then number seven, theism. Theism, which is where all of us are, I hope. A personal God who is infinite, he does exist outside and beyond the universe, but he also acts within it. So he's personal, he's infinite, 
He's outside of his universe, but he also acts within it. Now, we need to be fair here. There are uh, several other theistic, in fact, maybe the better word at this point are monotheistic systems. Mono means one. So monotheism affirms there is only one God. Well, of course, that's true of Christianity. That's also true of Judaism. And that's also true of Islam. They're right there. Judaism, Islam, Christianity are the three great monotheistic faiths. But what sets us apart from the other two? Our affirmation of the Trinity and that God, though one, exists in some mysterious plurality within unity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That sets us apart in terms of our understanding of God immediately from Judaism and also from Islam. All right? So, Pick up the pace so we can close on time our first session. What then are the five sources of authority that are possible in helping you then craft both your theistic understanding of the world and also crafting the totality of your worldview? And there really are only five possible sources, so I'll just note them very quickly. Number one, reason. Reason. You do what you do and you think the way you think because of reason. You're the rational type, you like to gather the data, you like to investigate it and analyze it, and so you do what you do because your mind tells you, having examined the evidences, this is the right thing to do. This is rationalism in its extreme, all right? Secondly, experience, which clearly dominates the day in America. Experience. I do what I do. And think the way I think because I just feel like this is the right thing. Uh, Brother Tom and others on this staff can tell you there have been times in our lives where we have counseled with people and we have shown them what the Bible says and they come back and say, well, I just feel in my heart this is right. I just feel in my heart. This is what God wants me to do. And you say, but God's word is very clear that that's not what he says, and that's not what he wants, and that's not what he teaches. Well, that's just how I feel, and I've been in the one of years, and I just believe God wants me to be happy. If I had a nickel for every time I've ever heard that, I'd be a, a multimillionaire. Although I would quickly add, a Christian worldview helps you understand there's nothing in the Bible that says that God is committed to making you happy. He's committed to making you holy. He's committed to giving you joy. But you can't find anywhere in the Bible where God says, my goal for your life is to make you happy. That's the, the damnable nature of prosperity theology and the teachings of people like Joel Osteen. And if I offend you about that, I'm sorry, but you ought to be able to think better than that. Because what he teaches is a false gospel. And so much of what he teaches is contrary to the clear, plain teachings of of the Bible, but maybe you operate out of a authority of experience, okay? Number three, tradition. I do what I do because it is the way it has always been done. This is unfortunately the source of authority for far too many churches, and what worked in one day doesn't work quite so well today, but hell will freeze over before we change. Better for us to die than to change, and I've seen that as well. And, and, and let's be fair, we all are, are influenced by tradition. It's inescapable. And some traditions are good, but I'm going to argue in a moment, they all need to be evaluated by a superior source of authority, all right? Number four, peer pressure. Peer pressure, which is sort of related to experience, but a little bit different, so I, I pull it out. Uh, I do what I do because others are doing it, of course, we'll often say, well, this is the particular source of authority for teenagers, and certainly it's very dominant in the world of teenagers. But you know what? I'm now 62 years old, and what I've discovered is that adults aren't much different. Adults are massively influenced as well by peer pressure because we all want to be accepted, especially by our particular peer group, just the way that we are. And so it's really hard sometimes to push back and kick uh, against the herd mentality, as Chuck Swindoll calls it. But we have to if we're going to be obedient to Christ, which then leads to the fifth and where I would put a star because this is where I hope all of us land, revelation. 
Revelation. And I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. I'm talking about God revealing himself. I do what I do. I think the way I think. I live the way I live because God says so. So in other words, whenever I am faced with any kind of issue that requires decision-making, my first primary and ultimate question is, what does God say? And of course, I can find that out by asking the question, what does the Bible say? And so for me, I want to be fair. I'm going to use my reason. I can't escape my experiences. Tradition is going to have a voice in my head. Peer pressure is certainly something that even unaware is about me. But when everything is said and done, I want to ultimately make the decisions I make and think the way I think because I ask the question and get the answer to that question from the Word of God. But here's the problem. If you don't know the Word of God, then you're in trouble because you, even if you want to get there, don't know how to get there which is why biblical illiteracy is such a malady and is such a detriment to a healthy, productive, growing Christian life. And so ultimately, Revelation is the one authority that I believe should shape and mold and craft our worldview. You know, one way of simplifying it is, uh, you know, several years ago, I actually saw somebody recently said it's sort of kind of making uh, and a comeback, I don't think it's really true, maybe in some little pockets. But uh, maybe now 25 years ago, maybe 30, it's very popular for people to wear a bracelet. And, of course, on that bracelet there were four letters, W-W-J-D, which stood for what? What would Jesus do? All right. I remember a few years ago, the very brilliant, off-the-scale, genius uh, theologian, N.T. Wright. He's a British guy. Of course, they're so stiff. I mean, they need to just loosen up. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he's British through and through. But he talked about how he, like many of his colleagues, enjoyed poking at the Yanks, which is us, of course, and poking at the Yanks. And one of the things they liked to poke at the Yanks about was our shallow, superficial Christianity. And one of the things he thought that really stood out in that context was the stupidity of going around with a little bracelet that had on it the letters WWJD. And he said in this article, I felt that way until I had teenagers. And all of a sudden, you know, I begin to think it would not be such a bad thing if my teenage children, before they did anything, would ask the question, what would Jesus do? Which I think most of us in this room would say, well, if my teenage children, or like for some of us now, grandchildren, were to always ask, I'd, I'd be happy about it. But here's the deal. If you don't know the Bible, you can't answer the question, what would Jesus do? And then you hear this kind of ridiculous stuff that comes out of all sorts of mouths today in social media. Well, my Jesus. Well, my Jesus. Well, I, I don't really care about your Jesus or even my Jesus. What I care about is the Jesus revealed in the Bible. Because that's the real Jesus. That's the true Jesus. So once more, we realize that biblical illiteracy is deadly and makes it virtually impossible to really craft and cultivate a comprehensive, coherent Christian worldview. So, let's take a last few points, and then we'll take our break. What difference does my worldview really make? Well, this took some quotes for you, both from the far extreme of atheism to the more of, uh, uh, extreme in many people's minds of evangelical Christianity. Frederick Nietzsche was a brilliant, brilliant, atheistic German philosopher. He was often called uh, the poetic philosopher by the way that he wrote. You might find it interesting that he was hands down the overwhelming favorite philosopher of Adolf Hitler. And Adolf Hitler in his Nazi Germany fascism absolutely embodied almost perfectly the worldview way of thinking of Frederick Nietzsche. Well, Nietzsche said this, and by the way, Nietzsche's father was a pastor. 
I regard Christianity as the most fatal <clears throat> and seductive lie that has ever existed, as the greatest and most impious lie. I urge people to declare open war with it. And actually Nietzsche, <clears throat> before a group of American theologians in the 1960s, uh, coined the idea that God is dead. And by that he didn't mean that God died, but he meant that even the idea of God is no longer a valid, valuable, or even tenable uh, concept. And he also was right. If God is dead, then everything is permissible, which uh, is absolutely true. Secondly, Carl Sagan, who for years was the host of the hit PBS uh, special Cosmos, the Cosmos, the created order, is all that is or ever was or ever will be. By the way, you do realize that's a faith statement. It's not a statement of fact. It's a statement of faith. You can't prove that. Now, you can't maybe disprove it, but you can't prove it. So it's not a fact statement. It's a faith statement. C.S. Lewis, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It's a beautiful poetic way of saying what a Christian worldview allows you to do. And then one of my heroes, Jim Elliott, his Christian worldview helped him answer the question, is there anything I would be willing to die for? Yes, because he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. By the way, if you've ever seen the... Um, documentary about uh, the death of the uh, missionaries of Ecuador among the Aka Indians into the spear. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot being interviewed shared that the last time she was with her husband she said Jim you know how uh, aggressive and, and violent the Akas are and you will have your guns with you. Most people didn't realize that they had guns. And if they attack, will you use your guns? And Jim Elliott said, no. And when his wife said, why? He said, because we are ready for heaven. But they are not. And when they were attacked, they did not defend themselves. And five wonderful missionaries for the Lord Jesus Christ died in the sands of Ecuador. And then the Apostle Paul gives us what is my life verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I refer to that as the ultimate win-win scenario. As John Piper says, I live, I get Christ. When I die, I get more of Christ. All this old world can do to me is kill me, and that means instant Jesus. Go right ahead. Now, a non-Christian would say that's the thinking of a fool. But those of us that know him say, no, that's the thinking of a follower of Jesus.